0: Welcome to All Students of Stanford Unite, the official podcast of the Associated Students of Stanford University and Stanford Student Enterprises. I'm your host, Cricket Vidalman. Today's guest is Jason Beckman, who is a fifth-year PhD student in Japanese literature and a co-director of Graduate Affordability. Hi, Jason.
1: Hi, Cricket. Great to be here. So excited to talk today.
0: Would you mind telling us a little more about yourself?
1: Absolutely. As you mentioned, I'm a fifth-year PhD in Japanese literature, originally from Chicago, Illinois, but I've kind of been here, there, and everywhere. I did my undergraduate at Brown University, and I worked a few jobs in between graduating college and deciding to kind of come back to academia for my PhD. I actually did a master's degree in comparative literature in London before coming over to Stanford and starting my PhD for five years ago at this point it's crazy crazy how time flies
0: all right so you're from Obamatown as some people referred to it Um, yeah
1: I I haven't heard that lately though (laughs) no
0: (laughs) no neither have I you said you went to school in London for your master's what was that like as compared to America
1: that's correct London is a great town it's a beautiful place to to live and stay also since we're talking about affordability today it's very expensive to live there it's amazing what's accessible there because there are so many free museums and so many affordable places you can go for entertainment. There's, there's really cheap theater tickets available. So even though London was an expensive city, it had a lot of wonderful, affordable things to do as a student and a lot of places to access culture, to meet people, to enjoy. So I had a great time there. I was living in like an international student's graduate residence. And so I met a lot of people from around the world studying different things. It was a great time.
0: Would you say it was more or less affordable than Stanford?
1: It's, it's such a hard question. It's a very different paradigm. I would say one of the reasons I went to the UK for a master's degree is because I could get an MA in one year and it cost maybe a quarter of what it would cost in the United States. So I think my general perception is that it was actually more affordable to live in London than it was to be in the Bay Area to live at Stanford.
0: That's interesting. I guess America is pretty expensive as a
1: whole. Stanford, the specific area of Stanford is also quite expensive. And the paradigm shift I underwent was I went from being an MA degree, you know, functioning with a certain amount of support uh, to being a PhD student, relatively independent. I'm compensated for my work, but I'm more or less responsible for my living expenses through the work that I'm doing at Stanford. So it's hard to balance the salary level that you receive as a PhD student with how much it costs to actually live at Stanford. My Stanford housing, it was more expensive throughout my time at Stanford than my London housing arrangement.
0: Right. So is that what drew you to the affordability position then?
1: More than anything, it's been just my constant consciousness of how much effort and energy it takes to balance the budget on a monthly basis, trying to keep track of how costs are changing year to year and the relatively confusing messaging the university gives us with regard to simple things like how much am I going to be paid next year? How much is housing going to cost next year? Is is that changing in a way that's going to make it unlivable, that I'm not going to be able to subsist on my, my income level? So I think going through the exercise of on at least a yearly basis, trying to figure out all right, how much is my rent rising? How much is my stipend going to be? Can I afford this? It led me to think more broadly about how this is functioning across the university and how it's affecting other people and, and how situations differ between departments, for instance.
0: Right, so then what is your ideal vision for the year?
1: The difficulty with affordability as a concept is there's no end game. It's very unclear, sort of like, what, what is a clear path forward to make Stanford more affordable. And I think that's that's really the broad goal, goal is, you know, Stanford should be more affordable. People should be able to live and and work at Stanford and and a broad range of people, not just people who have financial backing or a spouse who works or parental support for instance. Everybody should be able to to do the work they're meant to do. So to get there, that's when you start to have to ask a lot of questions about you know what what are our steps what what are our goals and and so i'm kind of working backwards from that when you're asking my vision for the year so let's start with that i think a broad goal is let's make stanford more affordable and then a vision for the year what can we accomplish in one year we can start to piece through like what are the complex issues that are a part of affordability and what can we tackle first. That leads us to will intersect with, I think, what a lot of the other directors of ASSU are working on and what a, a lot of student activists are working on as well. You run into issues like housing, healthcare, food security. These are things that exist in the orbit of affordability and our issue areas that are a little, a little bit more defined. So if we're going to uh, tackle affordability by saying, okay, rent is too expensive, how do we, how do we deal with that? We start to go towards the, the people at Stanford who can start to answer those questions. Who is going to determine the price of rent? Who is thinking about the, the rate of stipends versus what rent is charged? And already in this few minutes of, of trying to describe that, we're already out of the bounds of complexity that you can deal with when trying to get institutional change. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like then that you're trying to lay out, not necessarily a roadmap, but kind of a path for the next people who are filling your position to continue on. Would you say that that's true?
1: That's definitely an important piece. It's work that's not going to end. I would like to think that there are things we can accomplish. And I think we're meeting on a weekly basis with members of the university professional staff in different offices. And we're trying to identify who does what work. Who can affect change in different areas and how do we start to better individual situations? Can we tackle small things as well and identify some urgent concern we can tackle at the same time that we're doing kind of this long range vision planning?
0: Right. So you said you moved out of Stanford Housing. Where are you now if you're comfortable sharing?
1: That's correct. Yes, I'm living up in Napa.
0: Oh, I was there for a camp counseling job at one point.
1: Oh, wonderful. Yeah, it's a really beautiful place. The The fires have been a bit unsettling, but things have seemed to calm down a little bit in, in the recent week. Week or two, I guess.
0: Last couple of time increments, I guess.
1: Exactly. During COVID, all we have is uh, arbitrary time increments to, to yeah. live in.
0: Yeah, I never even realize when another week has gone by, and I only know because I have to look at my calendar and it says Monday again, so... So it sounds like, though, that a lot of grad students have moved out of housing. Do you think that there are any particular reasons for that?
1: I mean, reason number one is it's expensive and it's overly expensive. A number of friends of mine and also colleagues, as soon as they were able to find something, whether in San Francisco or elsewhere in the Bay Area, that was more affordable and off campus, they moved out.
0: And do you think that that was caused by COVID at all or just because housing became less expensive?
1: My reasoning for moving out was that everything transitioned to online. I wasn't going to have any like, in-person classes. And knowing that I could do everything virtually with all, th- all other things equal, the cheapest option would be to live elsewhere. So I think it's, it's related. I think COVID, that, that's an also interesting point that you bring up is, is that COVID is, I think, driving down the price of housing generally in the, in the Bay Area. So that's also, that's providing other options. And so we're in a situation now where the Stanford housing option is much more expensive, I think, than a lot of other options. And it's probably still be the cheapest in the area. So for people who do wanna be, or do need to be, I mean, there are, there are people who are PhD students who have to be in lab, they have to be living in an accessible, in a location that they can get to their lab, for instance. And that frequently is, is on campus is the easiest option.
0: So do you think then that when COVID is over and all the grad students start flooding back to campus, that housing in the Bay Area is going to become too expensive again?
1: That's probably a question that I can't really answer. I, I don't know, because it really depends. If if we're talking about the Bay Area broadly, we're talking about tech companies, we're talking about a whole corporate world, what they decide to do with muting and having people in an office. I think we're going to see the possibility that a lot of companies will remain virtual, will do telecommuting for quite some time, especially with there's no real end in sight to COVID, sadly. So we can't really expect that in the next few months, it's going to be resolved. It really depends on how optimistic you are. So I, I think that's something that makes it difficult at both ends, because it makes the job of university administration more difficult, because they're trying to deal with a situation they don't can't possibly understand. And we're trying to just do our best in the situation as we see it. But another problem that emerges is affordability, which was kind of high on the university's priority list. We had the affordability task force that was moving towards a conclusion. They were supposed to have, I think, already announced a conclusion that's kind of fallen by the wayside because of COVID response and, and responding to the situation has taken precedent. Really, the situation necessitates a harder look at affordability because I think for a lot of people, the situation has become less affordable and, and COVID has caused more expenses than people have had to face before.
0: And when the campus compact was installed, I know that there were a lot of concerns among graduate students primarily and then undergrads later on. And I wonder if, do you think that that has had anything to do with affordability?
1: Yes, I would say there are definitely connections between what went on with the campus compact and affordability but they're harder to see. What you'll see if if you kind of go back through what emerged and the concerns about the campus compact was concerns about who can be spending time with, who who can be present on campus, where people are allowed to go on campus. And so, you know, all of that seems like bureaucratic, logistical, spatial at first glance, but really beneath that, if you if you pull back a layer, you start to think about what happens to a student who needs to take care of a family member, for instance, or who needs a caretaker. Do they get to come to campus? Is that compact, is that situation creating an unlivable situation for them because their only option right now is to live on campus? Maybe that's due to affordability issues. And now can they have an appropriate situation for for what their needs are? That would be one dimension of that. I know that people... Grad students with families, especially, have been hit hard by this, and that's actually one of the issues that came up at one of our our ASSU listening sessions, was the compact and the the zones on campus have created this situation where their families can't really get out and about in the same way, or they don't feel safe wandering around campus or having an outside place to be. Campus housing is relatively small and fine, so that... Is another sort of tangential, it doesn't seem like the the core issue there is affordability, but there are affordability components which come down to where do these students have to be when they're living? Do they have other options? And usually the the, the other option question is no, because if, if people had other options, I think many, as many have been leaving, what people have exercised as their option to do.
0: Right, that makes sense because I feel like there would be a lot of issues with like figuring out who's able to be on campus, and also with the new households. Students are told that they can form households with other students, but no one really talks about whether grad students can form other quote-unquote households with their families, especially because families aren't necessarily registered with Stanford.
1: The huge controversy about the, the compact when it came out was that there was language in it about evicting people who violate the compact, that seems to be thinking that originated maybe about how undergraduate students live at campus part-time, but their full, full-time full address is like back with their families. Graduate housing is effectively our primary home. To be told that for whatever reason you can be found to be violating the compact, which is was from its outset not very clear to a lot of people, and then be removed from your housing, rendering you homeless, that strikes me as one of the key issues that generated such a passionate and rightfully outraged response from the graduate community when they saw how how the compact was rolled out. That kind of gets to the point of people are here because they're trying to do their work. They're trying to live. They're living in the conditions they have. The rules and regulations that govern the institution affect graduate students deeply in, in those ways. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, you know, there are international students who if they were evicted from campus, wouldn't yep. necessarily have a place to go. There are undergrads who are also in adverse circumstances. Like my California mailing address is with my family, but I'm not with them and I probably won't be for the foreseeable future. I saw the Campus Compact in its first form and I was not happy to put it lightly. So I'm right. glad that it has changed a little bit at least.
1: The people who wrote the, the Campus Compact and and the offices that put it out were very receptive to the feedback. And I think they were very quick to respond and start to make those changes. Hopefully that will that dialogue will continue to happen. I think that's key because the situation evolves, things change, and things are changing rapidly. So changing those, those regulations as time go, goes by is, is another important part of the process.
0: Right, I wanted to shift a little bit to talking about the graduate student community because on campus, it seems like, well, In the past, um, before the pandemic, undergrads had a fairly solid community because we were in dorms all the time, but graduate students didn't necessarily have that. So how do you think that has been affected by the pandemic and by the constantly changing affordability of things?
1: Yeah, community during COVID. this, This is a great question. And I think community at Stanford has always been kind of a difficult question because for a lot of grad students, I think your default community becomes your department. It becomes your program, your department. For some people in sciences and engineering, it, it could become your lab. It becomes the place that you see people all the time, the, the people you see most frequently in the place that you do your work. Many times become sort of, well, for me, it was my department. It was my, it was my office in my department building. It was my cohort of students who I'm in seminars with all of the time. And I think that it's similar for a lot of people, is that the, the department because of the default. And I think it leads to a lot of fracture in terms of the when you talk about the graduate student community, it's not really graduate student community as a whole. It's different graduate student communities. And there some people gravitate more perhaps to like residence halls and the different areas of Escondido Village where they might be living. CAs do great work to put on events and kind of create community in that way. It works for some people, it doesn't work for others. So I think it's a lot harder to talk about that just because of the size and the breadth of the graduate student experience and all of the different sort of pockets of the university that people find themselves in.
0: Right, but there have been some things like Club Cardinal that have aimed to increase community both for undergrads and I'm hoping grad students. So do you think there's potential then during COVID possibly to broaden communities a little bit?
1: I've seen some great things in terms of what virtual events and what, I think there's, there's a tension there because it becomes hard to be on Zoom all of the time to sort of have your social life exist where your work life also exists in those same sort of boxes but it certainly it makes conferences accessible in ways they haven't been it makes events accessible i've seen great turnout for workshop events in various different workshops around the humanities that i've never seen that sort of turnout because people have to actually transport themselves to the event it becomes harder for people to get there but just logging onto the computer provides kind of instant access. So it becomes a, a tension between managing people's exhaustion for for being constantly in the same space of technology with the need to actually connect and, and have these sort of discussions and continue our academic work, which involves discussion and thinking together and finding out what other people are doing, which is just as important a part of the process.
0: How would you say then that advocacy efforts have been impacted by this new virtual space? I would say that we have a lot easier access to administrators, but that some of the humanity is definitely taken out of our efforts because we're behind computer screens and they don't really get to know us as people.
1: I think you've basically hit it on the head there. For what I've seen in, in different groups I'm a part of, it is a lot easier to to communicate. We've become a lot more coordinated in in how we talk about things, when we're getting together, scheduling meetings, being being on top of the coordination with advocacy on different causes and in different spaces as well. I think exactly the, the point that you made about it being harder to feel recognized or, on the flip side, to feel ignored. And that your demands and your needs and that your experiences are not being heard, that's equally real. I was one of the people who was a part of the reverse town hall that happened at the beginning of the school year, and we had almost six hundred people there, and that felt like an event. That felt like an event the caliber of of holding a pretty substantial rally, and it was made possible by the fact that everyone was on Zoom. That we we could have a webinar, that we could bring all of these different people there. Provost Drell was there, vice provosts Stacy Bent, Susie Brubaker Cole. They were there. We could have that event because specifically, I think, because of the format because it be, has become normalized to have this sort of virtual event. Short of that magnitude and short of that sort of amount of momentum and, and the feeling that we've actually amassed this this number of people to the point where we feel that we can be heard, it seems like things might kind of just slip through the cracks. That's another great if I could transition to talking about the ASSU listening sessions that we had in different subject areas, I think that's a a great example of an, events that were much smaller scale, had less attendance, still had a lot of representatives from different university offices present to listen, to start to try to understand different problems people are facing now. How do you follow up from that to actually move towards solutions since we've spent time listening to these problems to identifying you know what's hurting members of our community how do we move from that to decisions and to initiatives
0: right so for those events I remember publishing them on social media and I was told to try to get as many people as possible to be there and this is something that we always 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 do but it seemed also like that having smaller audiences and having smaller groups of attendees was actually better because people felt more comfortable sharing what they had to say. And there was more conversation about issues instead of just an issue storm towards the admins. So what would you say about bigger versus smaller attendance at things?
1: There are different goals. And the reverse town hall, for instance, had a goal of bringing together a lot of different issues and giving a platform for student leaders who are working on those issues to speak and to present a united front and say, these are concerns of ours And we have a shared vision for what this university could be. The smaller sessions, and obviously, you know, I'm jumping from one to the other. They're not directly connected really in any way. But they do share a core of let's get members of the community together, give people a platform to speak, to talk about issues, to talk about what they're facing. And hopefully then it will net some sort of progress towards conclusion or towards improvement of of these issues. I do agree that the smaller sessions, it allowed for actually some dialogue to start to occur. They were more focused. They had sort of different issues organically become central to the discussion. I'm thinking of our affordability listening session where a few students came who wanted to talk about COVID testing and the treatment of subcontracted workers on campus. If we're talking about affordability on campus, it, the problems extend far beyond those that impact students. But also there's a there's an intimate relationship between students and subcontracted workers who are coming into residences to do repairs, to do cleaning, who are, uh, we're interacting with them on a daily basis in many ways, or at least were prior to the pandemic, but it continues to happen. So I think what we saw in that small session was, yes, we can actually have a discussion about that. We can start to find out who, what representatives from the university present have something to say about that, have knowledge of, you know, what offices have to do with that. They they allow us to also hone our advocacy, I think, in many ways, because we, we don't have to keep sending off emails to people who we don't know if they have anything to do with the issue, really. But we do send those emails anyway, because the the need to address the issues and the need to be heard doesn't end.
0: Right. And speaking of talking about issues and making our voices heard, you were one of the key people in the Community Needs Survey. Can you talk a little more about that?
1: Absolutely. So we just wrapped up the Community Needs Survey. It was an incredibly, perhaps almost too comprehensive survey that covered 10 different issue areas. We allowed everyone to kind of select what are the areas that you are most concerned with? What would you like to respond to us today about? That survey was meant to really just in the most honest way possible collect information about what are people's situations? What are what are the issues that people are facing? What are concerns that are had and, you know, what are things that we, the end goal is, what can we as ASSU and what can we as student leaders across the board? Because I imagine this, this is information that's going to be shared with stakeholders across the university. How can we better understand our communities and use the information that we've gathered to advocate for changes that need to, need to occur?
0: So how can you foresee the respondents to the affordability section affecting your work this year?
1: Yeah, we put into the affordability section a lot of questions because I think we have a lot of unknowns. We want to know about more about what are people's family situations like, what are people's financial situations like, to the extent they wanted to share that with us. But I think that's something that, that's information we can't get elsewhere. So the more that people are willing to share and give that information and to share with colleagues the more we can know about, what does affordability actually look like? Is there a way to generalize? Is there a way way to understand meaningful differences between departments, funding packages, for instance, who has healthcare covered and who doesn't? These little differences can wind up turning into the difference between feeling financially stable and secure on a month-to-month basis and feeling very much not so.
0: A smaller issue that has been questioned in terms of affordability is the recent change to the 5150 policy, because some people are concerned that ambulance fees won't necessarily be covered, while the Student Affairs Office has committed to helping support that. So do you have anything to say on that?
1: I know about the rule change. I've heard exactly the issues that you mentioned. I have not been able to find out yet what exactly the protocols are going to be, how that actually will translate to affecting people. I mean, This is a great example. It's a great case that gives us a window into how difficult it is to address some of these issues because it's one of those things that, okay, the change has been made, it's a good change, but it's gonna have these perhaps adverse effects. We're not necessarily gonna find out about those adverse effects until people are getting those ambulance bills. That's a- effectively, I think, when we would start to find out about that. And at that point, it's, it's basically too late. The problem is then, how can we direct our efforts to, towards finding the answers? What exactly is gonna happen in this case? And then how do we go from there? If we can confirm that people are gonna be charged these ambulance bills, what do we do then? Does that does that make sense?
0: So how do you think then that we can start trying to figure out affordability on issues ahead of time? Because a lot of these things, we don't get told until the Daily knows about them or just shortly before that.
1: That's the crux of the position here, is that you know, it's a new position, I think, as far as I know, I think the having an affordability, uh, a set of affordability directors is a new feature of ASSU. At least it's the first that I've heard of this work. When when I kind of signed up to join the team, and there is not that sort of predictive. We don't have the benefit of having set path to follow, to understand exactly how to how to address affordability concerns. It's still a very amorphous area of concern that compounds issues from different areas so if, if there is any practical way forward it's really understanding it's a combination of what we're doing on different fronts it's, it's what's going on with the community needs or survey in terms of understanding what are the situations of our you know, community members and then on the flip side what are the levers that you have to pull to affect change in different areas who's the right person to talk to what are the right offices to contact, but from students' end is the best way to continue to advocate for these efforts.
0: How would you encourage both communities to remain involved in the survey process, in the ASSU, in advocacy work in general?
1: For people being involved and for people to continue to contribute in those ways, I think first getting in touch this and and a little bit last year was the first time that I realized as a graduate student, that the work that ASSU is doing is related to me as a graduate student as well. I think there's a pretty common conception that GSC is for grad students and ASSU is for undergraduate students, which is, is clearly not the case. A lot of the great work that Munir and Viana had done leading up to this year and that Vienna and Christopher are continuing to do is building that knowledge and that, that bridge across the, the artificial divide between undergraduate and graduate students. So I think continuing to encourage people from the community to get in touch with different members of the ASSU executive cabinet with ASSU representatives to discuss these issues. And so that students who are representing the community are actually going to the community to hear about what the needs are, what the problems are and to be able to reflect those in the the work that we're doing meeting with administration talking about issues trying to work on different different things. Stepping away from ASSU as a central hub of this work. There are a lot of amazing student organizations who are do, who are working on advocacy and so like it would be impossible for me to talk about all of the work that's going on in different areas, but to the extent that those groups can continue to communicate, can get together, can can work together to build support for the efforts they're leading, that to me strikes me as a huge potential for continued success. If we can work across all of those different channels to advocate for changes that are much needed, that's kind of a key way to ensure that things keep moving forward in a way that we want to see them move forward.
0: I would just say here that the Undergraduate Senate is the legislative body for the undergrads and the GSC is the legislative body for the grad students. There's no separation there. There's no separation in terms of the fact that both are parts of the ASSU, even though they sometimes seem a little bit siloed. Right. So my last question for you is the same as what I am asking everyone this month. That is that Thanksgiving is coming up. And even though life is exceedingly crazy right now, we still have a lot to be thankful for. So what's one Absolutely. thing that you're thankful for and why?
1: Oh, there's so much I'm thankful for. I'm I'm thankful for my wonderful life partner, Inez. We're living here together and she is my support net on a daily basis. Reminds me that there's a lot of good in the world, even when everything seems to be on fire. I will just say I'm thankful for her.
0: That is really, really sweet. Got any last things that you'd like to add?
1: I would just like to say thank you for for taking the time today. I think this is an amazing series. I'm glad to be a part of it. And it's great to be working with you within ASSU to to do the work we're doing.
0: Yeah, of course. And I'm always taking recommendations for students who might like to participate as well. So thank you so much for talking today, Jason. I appreciate it. That was Jason Beckman, who is the co-director of Affordability and Advocacy and also a PhD student in Japanese Literature. This is another episode of All Students of Stanford Unite, the official podcast of the Associated Students of Stanford University and Stanford Student Enterprises. I'm your host, Cricket Bidelman, and if you have any feedback at all, please feel free to send it to communications at assu.stanford.edu. Thanks so much, and have a good day.